standing inside a glass dome protruding from the top of his Halifax heavy bomber aircraft, Wilson Brooks had to plot a route with a course era no greater than 11 degrees and within one minute of the projected flight time per hour. With these calculations in mind, he had to direct his aircraft to get within the incredibly small margin of 24 kilometers from his objective. That's all to say, Wilson Brooks had to be very, very precise. And as a Royal Canadian Air Force navigator training to join the Royal Air Force Bomber Command, Wilson's precision could mean the difference between life and death in the skies above occupied Europe. Of the 120,000 aircrew who served in Bomber Command during the Second World War, 45% were killed. It had the highest death rate of any of the forces in the Second World War. Apparently, the German submarine corps had slightly higher than that. We're comparing both sides. So if you think about this, the Halifax three bombers that he was a navigator on, um, it would carry a payload of about 13,000 pounds of bombs. So you're sitting on that with a crew of seven. There's a pilot, a radio, a wireless operator, four gunners, and the navigator. And you're being fired at on, on the ground by anti-aircraft, intense anti-aircraft fires is, you know, hitting you from on the ground. Plus, there are fighter jets fighting on your tails as well around you, dogfights going on with both sides. And it's very easy. I'm not saying people and people get hit often by friendly fire, their own side, trying to shoot down a, fight, a fighter pilot that's coming right after you. And they're sitting, they're not as maneuverable as, you know, as a, as a Spitfire or as a, as a Stuka dive bomber or a Messerschmitt or things like that. So they're caught in the middle of this crossfire. So if you think of the first of all, the nerves that you would have to do with that and the way that the um, the Halifaxes were designed, they had like a little glass bubble that the navigator would have to stand up to be able to look out at stars to navigate and everything to do that. Wilson's story is one of three remarkable legacies of Black Canadian veterans we're highlighting on Juno Beach and beyond this month. Their stories are included in a set of lesson plans developed by educators Chantelle Browning Morgan and Catherine McDonald for the Jackson Park Project, which you'll hear more about at the end of the episode. Chantelle, why don't you introduce yourself first? Sure. My name is Chantelle Browning Morgan. I'm a secondary school teacher in Windsor, Ontario, as well as a curriculum developer. And I'm Catherine McDonalds, and I'm a retired, um, proudly retired Ontario teacher. And I'm the, uh, along with Chantelle, one of the co-coordinators for the education platform for the Jackson Park Project. Chantelle and Kathy are both also recipients of the Governor General Award for Excellence in Teaching Canadian History. They'll share their research into these three remarkable legacies after the music. Canada's war effort is a voluntary effort. The sad thing was, we knew before anyone else when a ship went down. I went home every day and had to lie about my boring job as a typing clerk and always change the subject. If the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Wilson Oliver Brooks was born in Windsor, Ontario in 1925. 
Still a minor when the Second World War broke out, he had to wait until he turned 18 in 1943 to enlist in the Royal Canadian Air Force, also known as the RCAF. But even if Wilson had been of age when the war began in 1939, he wouldn't have been allowed to enlist because of the color of his skin. In the lead-up and early days of the conflict, the RCAF requested federal cabinet approval to restrict enlistment into the force, basically prohibiting visible minorities from serving. This policy was approved by the government in order and council. But as the war waged on, there's this evolution in policy, and in 1942, the RCAF opted to eliminate the regulations that stopped visible minorities from serving within their ranks. So they were, they were overturned officially in 1942. The RCAF was actually one of the leaders in overturning that, the official policies. But again, they actually had to fight to get into. So the RCAF did open up somewhat to visible minorities, but they were not put in the officer classes as well. That was the problem. So they had to fight to get into that too. And it was a lot of the, basically the initiative of individual, uh, these individuals who fought and pushed those boundaries and advocated for themselves that changed that. So official policy changed by the end of the war, but it didn't mean that the racism had been eliminated. It got better, but it still was not easy. So by 1943, Wilson was allowed to enlist. He was accepted and trained at Number 5 Bombing and Gunnery School in Saskatchewan as part of the British Commonwealth Air Training Plan. Trainees participated in lectures, demonstrations, assessments, and flying exercises day and night. And the school's motto was a surprisingly cheeky nod to the role of bombing and gunnery. It was, we aim to teach and we teach to aim. Wilson became one of very few Black Canadians to earn the rank of a commissioned officer with the RCAF, and even fewer designated as a navigator for Bomber Command. In 1944, a reporter for the Toronto Evening Telegram wrote that Wilson was the youngest Black Canadian to become an officer in the RCAF. Kathy, how uncommon was it for a young Black man to become a navigator during the Second World War? Extremely extremely it was hard as i said before they had to fight to be able to fight for their country um and uh, as irene moore davis who's president of essex county black historical research society said they they basically and they also fought for a country that wouldn't fight for them too so it was extremely difficult to uh, eventually as i said in about 1942 they dropped some of the uh, you know the policies that were barring people of color from even entering into the force officially um, and then they had anybody who wanted to become an officer there was a special uh, branch that they could go through um, to get into the air force uh, the air force was always a little bit more um, elitist in the sense to uh, class elitist, even from the First World War. It was wealthy people who could who knew how to fly, had their pilot's license, and even into the Second World War, they were preferred. And those would be people with money and the means to do that, which were very few people. Anyway, um, so it was very difficult for him to do that. Then he became a navigator, which was absolutely unbelievable. That's another 600 hours worth of training. So in, in answer to your question, um, the uh, you can just imagine what it would have taken for him to be one of the very first uh, Black pilots, Black Canadian pilots, and then to become an officer, and then to become a navigator, where you need superior math, physics kind of skills as well to do that. And I think he's a phenomenal role model because of that. 
After finishing his training as a navigator, Wilson was assigned to number 415 Squadron, which originally served in the Coastal Command of the British Royal Air Force. So just a little background here. Just before the outbreak of the war, the British Royal Air Force was restructured into three formations that covered different functions. You had Fighter Command, Bomber Command, and Coastal Command. During the Second World War, Royal Canadian Air Force squadrons, like Wilson's, served in each of these three British formations. While a part of Coastal Command, 415 Squadron was responsible for torpedoing and bombing enemy shipping ports. But as the Allies began applying increased pressure on the German forces around the last nine months of the war, 415 Squadron was transferred to Bomber Command. By the time Wilson joined the squadron, they had already flown more than 100 missions to bomb areas of Germany and occupied Europe. Now, he joined after the final mission and acted as a part of a spare crew for an attack in April 1945 in case a crew couldn't fly. When the squadron returned to Canada, Wilson volunteered for service with Tiger Force, Canada's proposed contribution to a bombing campaign against Japan. But with the war's end, Wilson's service was no longer required, and he was discharged on the 8th of September, 1945. So the phenomenal level of skill that he would have had to have had and nerves, a mindset for that, you have to have this thing called situation awareness where things are changing, weather is moving, everything with all this combat going around you and having to keep your mind on that very precise math, science, physics skills that you need to navigate over there. I mean, what does that say about him? Phenomenal phenomenal. So, and one of the things that we love about the people we've chosen, all of them, they show black excellence. They show black accomplishment. Um, and this is something we want people to see instead of all the, the trauma that you hear about when you're reporting about black history, which is a horrible part about it, it is, but there is that this other side. And we want to bring hope to high school students, hope to young black students to see and, and, and other students to see, hey, and look at the double war they were fighting to be able to do that. I mean, these are Canadian heroes. I mean, speaking of black excellence, can you talk about what Wilson does after the war, his involvement in civil rights and, and veterans advocacy? Absolutely. He's, this is why he's not only a military hero in my eyes, he's also a community builder. And he started, he was one of the leaders of the, uh, the Black Veterans Association. Now in that day, it was called the, the ne Toronto Negroes Veterans Association. So he was one of the leaders in founding that. The Veterans Association didn't just advocate for those who served during the war. They also joined other community groups in putting pressure on cases of discrimination on the basis of color. Wilson became a strong advocate for allowing Black women to attend nursing schools in Ontario, as well as fighting for veteran pensions and other benefits. So this is the kind of civil rights movement we see right here in Canada. It's not just, it's the wonderful, certainly we see the magnificent movement in the United States. We had our own with people that did that met and spent hours in committee meetings, wrote letters, spoke to people, challenged people. Okay, and challenge the status quo. So he did that. He also ended up becoming the first black male teacher in Toronto and the first black male principal in Toronto. And then later on, a, he was interviewed in the Toronto Star by that. And uh, later on, he becomes one of the founders of the Ontario Black History Society. So a phenomenal man.
Wilson Brooks was not the only Black Canadian from the Windsor area to participate in breaking racial barriers during the Second World War. In 1944, the Windsor Star reported that a woman by the name of Ella Jackson was the first Black woman from the Windsor region to join the Canadian Women's Army Corps. Across the Detroit River, the Tribune reported Ella to be the only Black woman from Western Ontario to serve in the Corps, which was known as the CWAC. Ella Jackson was born in Detroit, Michigan in 1922 to a Canadian mother and an American father. She spent time in both Detroit and Windsor, where she was living when she decided to enlist in CWAC. The creation of the Canadian Women's Army Corps was the result of two factors, the realization that the Army would eventually need more workers, and the pressure exerted on the federal government by Canadian women eager to join in the fight. The formation of CWAC represented the first time women were mobilized for service in the Canadian Armed Forces. Ultimately, about 21,600 women served in the Corps over the course of the war. Ella would have been one of very few visible minority women included amongst their ranks. And unlike the RCAF, the CWAC had no official policy prohibiting the service of visible minorities. But as Chantal points out, this doesn't mean that Black women weren't being discriminated against. While we weren't able to find anything specific on the policies, we were able to uncover two editorials from 1943, which both highlighted the fact that racial prejudice was being practiced at the um, Olette Recruitment Office here in Windsor, Ontario, and that there was um, a sign outside of the recruiting station that said Canada needs you. However, when young Black women went to answer the call, they were denied because of the color of their skin. One of these letters reads in part, What a marvelous thing complete freedom must be. Freedom to go anywhere in the country you love without having the humiliating fear of being told that you are not wanted. To answer your country's call without the colored line of prejudice prohibiting you from joining the branch in which you might desire most to serve. CWAC began recruiting in September 1941, and while there is evidence that Black women were certainly turned away, the only official requirements to serve in the Corps were that recruits had to be British subjects between 18 to 45 years old. They had to be single with no dependents and a minimum of a grade 8 education. Physically, women had to weigh at least 105 pounds and be at least 5 feet tall. Acceptance into the Canadian Women's Army Corps was done on a case-by-case -case basis. So when Ella Jackson submitted an application in 1944, the recruiter handling her file decided to accept it. That summer, Ella was sent to Number 3 CWAC Basic Training Center in Kitchener, Ontario. Chantelle, why do you think so few Black Canadian women are documented to have served in the CWAC? Well, I think it's that type of racism that is often practiced here in Canada that is a little more covert than in the United States. And um, when you look through the recruitment posters and even looking through um, the war diaries and some of the scrapbooks, it was really interesting to see that even when I know Ella Jackson was stationed in Kitchener um, during her time with CWAC. There's no mention of her in any of the scrapbooks, in any of the social activities. There are no photos of her. Other than finding three entries in the war diaries, 
as well as um, the notices in the newspaper about, you know, the first black woman from southwestern Ontario in CWAC, you almost wouldn't even know that there was a black CWAC at that time. So it was really the lack of material that we were able to uncover that really highlighted just how deeply entrenched the anti-black racism was. It was really moving to look through the scrapbook and read the articles about the dances and the baseball games and just see this erasure of Ella Jackson moved us to tears at times because I can't imagine what that must have been like in the early 40s for a young black woman from this area, Underground Railroad descendant to have to, you know, be so courageous and resilient, but at the same time, the pain that must have accompanied, um, you know, that historic milestone that she did achieve. So really, I would say it was the lack of information and inclusion that really let us know how pervasive the racism was. Finding out anything about Ella's military service was nearly impossible. Eventually, Chantel looked to the official war diaries for mention of her, printing off every single page of the diary from June to August 1944. Chantel began scanning each line until she found it. An entry for July 11th, 1944, Company B, that read, W-80358, Jackson E. What did you do when you finally found evidence of Ella in the war diary? I cried when I finally found her name. I took a picture, I sent it to Kathy. You know, I printed these out and I had them all over my living room floor. And I was so determined, um, like there has to be an entry of her. She had to have been assigned a duty at some point. And so it was finally, we were like, finally, there she is. It was literally like trying to find a needle in a haystack. And that so often happens with Black history and African history is that, you know, it's covered up and, you know, just dismissed as, oh, well, they didn't participate. And it's not that. It's usually, it's usually what happened is someone is trying to you know, hide history or, or don't think it's as important as, you know, someone else's history. So it was extremely, extremely moving for me. And um, I remember reaching out to Kathy and letting her know, like, we finally found her, like, and then I was able to um, find her headstone at a local graveyard. And it just, she became more real to us because we knew she was real. We knew what she has achieved and contributed to, um, you know, Canada's military history, but it's like we have to have proof, right? And so, you know, uncovering the entries in the war diaries and just seeing her, her tombstone, although her headstone was disappointing because there's no mention on her headstone at all about um, being a member of Canada's military, nothing about CWAC. And I can just, I can only imagine how isolating that experience must have been. So we're really hoping to put the pieces together and have a more complete story that we can share. You know, uh, she was fighting, as I think as Chantel put it, the triple war, you know, against fascism, against racism, and, and against um, misogyny, really. And we like to call this whole thing e-racism, <laughs> as, as they're being erased from history or certainly simply uh, because of the attitudes of the day not included, you know. 
In fact, despite their service to their country, inequality was part of the CWAC life. Service members' pay remained lower than that of men who held a similar rank. In 1941, the base pay for women was 90 cents a day, while for men, it was $1.30. Even with an increase in 1945, a CWAC's pay never reached more than 80% of her male counterparts. The details of Ella's life post-war are murky, but we know she went on to work as an elevator operator in the 1950s and moved between Windsor or Detroit before returning to Windsor to live permanently. She passed away in 2000. When Chantel located her grave, she decided to take two of her children to pay their respects. And um, I took my children because I said, this is a very important woman. Um, and we're walking on this like holy ground. This is where she was from. She did this at a time when she was facing, as Kathy just said, racism, sexism, fascism, um, just how, uh, you know, I, courageous I feel doesn't even do it justice. But the fact that she was able to just persevere and I wanted my children to know her story and I said you know you're not going to learn about her on Remembrance Day this year you're not going to see a picture of Ella Jackson but I want you to look at her picture I want you to remember her name I want you to know that she mattered and I want you to share her story with others so I wanted to make sure that my children knew that because it's so important for me as a black woman to make sure that my children um, recognize how rich their history is and you know also being underground railroad descendants and sharing that history with ella jackson you know i wanted to inspire and empower my children and say like you know look what she did at that time and just asking them questions like what do you think it was like for her you know how do you think she felt and really just picking their brains and you know we had a great discussion and you know we went and and you know i prayed and um it was a very peaceful moment The last veteran we're talking about today is one whose military service extended far past the Second World War. Kenneth Jacobs' military career began when he was conscripted for service through the National Resources Mobilization Act in 1943. Under the act, which was passed by Parliament in June 1940, men could be conscripted for home defense. This basically meant that they would be required to enter the armed forces, training and serving to protect Canada on the home front, but they couldn't be sent to fight overseas unless they volunteered to switch from the home defense service to the active service. So Kenneth completed his basic training at the Royal Canadian Artillery Training Program in Nova Scotia. He was then moved to the Royal Canadian Army Corps for advanced training in the operating room, and he remained there as an operating room assistant until the end of the war. Camaraderie. Um, Canada, of course, in the Second World War did not uh, you know, uh, segregate. Um, I was the only black guy in my outfit. And in that camp, it was a large camp with all kinds of people coming and going and training and so on like that, uh, there'd be maybe 5,000 people at any given time on that, uh, uh, in that camp. 
And I only saw one other black guy uh, in all the time that I was there. Um, I was well treated. I was highly, I was highly respected. Uh, I'm sure that, that if, if it hadn't been for policy, because that's what it really was, if it hadn't been for policy, I, I, I would have been, I would have advanced much more, well I didn't advance at all, I would have advanced. I went in as a private, came out as a private. What Kenneth is speaking about in that clip you just heard from the Veterans Affairs Canada video series Heroes Remember is that like in the CWAC, there were no official exclusionary policies that stopped people of color from serving in the army. But of course, that doesn't mean that discrimination didn't still exist. And I want to say this, too, it's kind of interesting, too, because the army was a little bit different. It was probably the least racist of all three forces. That's not to say there wasn't racism. They didn't have an official boundary for that or uh, statements about that. But and local uh, recruiting officers could make their own decisions. So it really reflected very individually the diversity of opinion on accepting people from different races at that time in the Canadian military. After the war ended, Kenneth went on to obtain a Bachelor of Arts from Assumption College and a Master's degree in Social Work from the University of Toronto. Thereafter, he went on to become the first Black Canadian social worker in the Children's Aid Society of Toronto. With his military background and social work profession, Kenneth was recruited by the Royal Canadian Air Force to become a social work officer in 1954. This was a fairly new recruitment area for the RCAF, focused on bringing highly trained professionals into the ranks to provide social work and mental health services to members of the Air Force. And unlike his service during the Second World War, Kenneth rose quickly through the ranks. In a short bio, he explained that he and 10 other social workers developed the new RCAF Welfare Services branch. The combination of military experience and professional training saw him transferred to number five Air Division headquarters in Vancouver. From 1955 to 1960, he was responsible for providing social work services to all RCAF personnel in British Columbia. He did the same for Quebec shortly after, and in 1972 was transferred to the National Defense Headquarters. I guess I'll talk about one of the, the big highlights of his career came in uh, 1975 when he was promoted to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, uh, becoming the first Black Canadian to do so. And, um, you know, such an inspiring story, Ken Jacobs. I, it was such an honor to do a little bit of research on him. I have met him before, um, before he passed and um, knew a little bit about his story, but I learned a lot more. And he was um, like, in, a, in addition to all of that, he was um, a social worker as well. And um, he, I believe he was the first black social worker um, in Toronto at the Children's Aid. So this um, theme of accomplishment comes up over and over uh, again when, when we were learning about Kenneth Jacobs. And, you know, like Ella Jackson, he's also someone who's local, you know, born and raised in Windsor, went to Prince Edward's school. And just, um, you know, he's very influential Canadian. And it just, it was also very heartbreaking to learn about Ken Jacobs because we're talking about the first Canadian of African descent to um, be promoted to this rank. But if you ask students about him or you look at the videos that they'll see on, Emancip on um, Remembrance Day, 
you don't ever see Ken Jacobs, but it was someone who, uh, um, an accomplishment like that, it's just unfortunate that he's not in our history textbooks. So that's just a little bit about Ken Jacobs. You know, it was a moment of change in Canadian history and um, something that for which all of Canadians should be proud of. Throughout his career, the local paper, the Windsor Star, had occasionally run pieces on his rise through the ranks. But when Chantel looked through the papers for notice of his promotion to lieutenant colonel in 1975, she couldn't find anything. Eventually, she located a letter to the editor Kenneth wrote in 1994. In it, he says, When I was promoted to lieutenant colonel, the military PR people refused to file a story with this star. The reason given was that the promotion was not newsworthy. I strongly disagreed, but to no avail. It wasn't going to be celebrated or acknowledged because he was a black man. So it would have been celebrated and acknowledged within my own community and within his family and within his church family. Absolutely, it would have at the time. And when you share a story like Ken Jacobs or Wilson Oliver Brooks or Ella Jackson, you're kind of... Um, you're going against this very stereotype that you and the prejudice that you work so hard to maintain in this society because certain people benefited from it and certain people were disadvantaged. So I think that's exactly what we saw with Ken Jacobs and the lack of celebration in the media around his very honorable accomplishment. In another letter written to the editor in 1997, Kenneth explained that when his predecessor at the National Defense Headquarters retired in 1974, he fully expected to be promoted to lieutenant colonel, saying, I was the only qualified person. Instead of promoting me, the service called in all the majors in the branch to advise of a surfeit of lieutenant colonels in the system. I shall never forget that morning. A senior officer was lying in his teeth and I was absolutely helpless to do anything about it. The truth is that the system was planning to bypass me and promote an officer who was ineligible because of insufficient seniority. He needed two more years before he became eligible. Even then, his qualifications from the point of view of experience, professional knowledge, facility in the French language, and seniority were inferior to mine. Yeah, so those were some of the challenges he faced, and um, he 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 really did persist on and felt that you know there should be a little bit more pressure maybe coming from the black community, so that you know some of these problems and issues that he experienced, you know, can be reversed. So it was basically the the anti-black racism is is what he experienced and he alludes to it a little bit in his interview as well and then um i believe we uncovered two articles in which he alludes to it but doesn't dwell on it too much like recognizes that it was there and it was not going to stop him he was going to persevere and um you know press on and you know thank goodness he did because you know what he accomplished is something that um no one had done before Chantelle and Kathy have worked tirelessly over the past couple years to uncover the three stories you just heard and to integrate them into lesson plans that teachers across Canada can use in their classrooms. 
You can access the lesson plans for Wilson, Ella, and Kenneth in the coming weeks by visiting www.jacksonparkproject.ca and selecting Education from the drop-down menu. The Jackson Park Project is a multi-platform not-for-profit that was created to explore, memorialize, and celebrate the history of the Emancipation Day celebrations in the Windsor area from the 1930s to the 1960s. Educational packages for classrooms are just one of the services the Jackson Park Project is working to provide to the public. I think the Truth and Reconciliation Commission challenged us to see Canadian history, not just from the, you know, what they used to call the bicameral French and English perspective, Euro Eurocentric history, that we've got rich Indigenous history. And I think the Jackson Park story really challenges us to see that Canadian history without it, it, Black history is Canadian history. Uh, black thought, Black innovation, Black people. Uh, we need to see names and faces. Our students need to see that desperately. Really, we really do. Everybody needs to, I think it would, we hope it's going to bring about uh, open minds and hearts to change people's view of, of Canadian history. This is what we hope to do. A lot of times in the classroom, Black people are presented as enslaved or during the Underground Railroad era in which they are presented in a manner in which they had no agency. And we really, throughout this project, wanted to change that narrative. We wanted to show the agency, we wanted to show the resilience, but we also wanted to show the excellence, the love and the joy. Many thanks to Chantelle Browning Morgan and Catherine McDonald for sharing these three legacies with me for this episode. I also really have to highlight here that the vast majority of newspaper and archival documents that I used to tell these stories today were uncovered by Kathy and Chantel throughout their original research for the Jackson Park Project. Throughout our interview, they also mentioned how integral the Essex County Black Historical Research Society and the Amherstburg Freedom Museum were to the process. This episode of Juno Beach and Beyond was produced and hosted by me, Louisa Simmons. You can find more episodes of Juno Beach and Beyond at junobeach.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It genuinely really helps us out. We're on all social media with the handle Juno Beach Center. The Juno Beach Center is Canada's second World War Museum and cultural site located in Normandy, France. 